to More Than Movies. I'm Ivana. And I'm Jay. Today, we take a dive into Take Two and try some quizzes. Plus, we discuss our favorite films we discovered in quarantine. It's time for a Top 3 Turf War. All right, Ivana, it has been 111 days since I started working from home and have sort of been in self-isolation with only only seeing very, very minimal people. That means I've been watching tons of movies, and I did the math and disgusted my wife. I have seen 102 movies in 111 days. Wow, that's crazy. But the great part about that is that I've discovered so many movies that I never would have watched. I'm talking stuff way, way before I was born to even like hidden gems that I'd never seen in my lifetime that people always said, you should check it out or uh, or for whatever reason I found it and I wanted to watch it. And, uh, I, and I got some good ones. I'm pretty excited. So I have been watching like a, a shocking amount of sexploitation films because I'm working on You're working on a movie about sexploitation. So that makes sense. Yeah. You gotta do your research. So I have been but oh my gosh. I mean some of them are really like interesting and cool, uh, but other ones are really, really bad. Oh yeah, totally. I mean a lot of that exploitation genre is by definition exploiting and and cheap and they don't they're not great stories no no exactly they're uh yeah especially like a lot in the 70s and 60s like those are some interesting ones yeah made for cheap exploit the audience who wants to see them and then make a bunch of money that's it so uh, do you have any of those on the list today i don't actually okay I do have a bunch of honorable mentions. It's going to be interesting coming up with our final top three list because these may not have anything to do with each other. There's no theme this time except we discovered some movies that we want to recommend to you in this top three. And I'm going to start us off. Okay, I'm ready. So my number three on my list, I gave this four and a half out of five stars is a Sylvester Stallone film by James Mangold called Copland. Have you heard of it? I've heard of Copland, but I've never seen it. I'd always known about it. They talked a lot. A lot of friends talked about it when I was in high school. And I, for whatever reason, just didn't go and see it. And then when it came out on video, I saw that cover a bajillion times, did not check it out. And it's got like Ray Liotta, Harvey Keitel, it's Robert got De Niro. Robert De Niro. It's it's a very awesome film, and it's one of James Mangold's first films. And if James Mangold is in your head and you're wondering, like, I know that director's name. Well, he did Logan and he did Ford, Ford versus, versus Ferrari. Ferrari. That's right. So uh, he's got some chops when it comes to telling a really in-depth story. And Copland is all about... The area on Staten Island where all the cops from New York City live and it's like wicked corrupt. And there's one sheriff in the town and that sheriff 
is Sylvester Stallone. Mm. And he's trying. But he also always wanted to be a real cop. So he looks up to these guys. It is fascinating. Uh, and the story's amazing. Lots of drugs and gangsters and t- every cop seems crooked. But it's such a, a well-told movie. At the end of it, I was like, holy crap, how did I wait this long? And it feels sort of like a like a Goodfellas or a Heat type of police mobster film. But it's by the guy who did Logan. So it's 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 definitely one to check out. It looks like heat or body heat. Like, I don't know. The, I'm looking at the poster right now on IMDb and it, it has that air, like that 90s kind of air. Absolutely. I think it was a sleeper hit when it came out. I always knew it had good reviews. It popped up on Amazon Prime and I was like, well, now's the time. I got to watch this movie. All right. I'm going to go a little bit newer in terms of my selection and it is the 2020 film the hunt okay all right uh wow me with this because i have not seen the film okay so the hunt is about 12 strangers that all just like wake up in this kind of woods slash clearing area kind of like the hunger games like the initial when they kind of wake up in the hunger games they're all together and they have to like figure run away so this is kind of a similar idea um all these people have been taken and now they wake up and they're kind of in this woods slash clearing and and close to one another but not immediately near each other and they're all incredibly confused and it really feels like we're about to like get into a situation where they have to kill each other to survive. Instead, they are just murdered. There is one person that you start to follow in the beginning of the movie. I'm not going to say what happens or, or any of the details, but it, it really is. They, they kind of is set up initially so that you have a certain set of expectations about what's going to happen. And pretty quickly within the beginning of the film, it kind of flips those expectations on their head. The film felt a little bit cathartic, and maybe this is why I enjoyed it. It, So things right now are like, in the States, as you know, we're we're recording this on July 2nd, um, things are like trending in the wrong direction (laughs) by like a lot. There are tons of new cases every day. People are dying it kind of feels like the world is ending. The States is talking about locking down again in my area in Pittsburgh. It has kind of not quite to the same extent as before, but we've definitely took taken away freedoms of people like to go to the bar and drink at night and that kind of stuff. That's not allowed anymore. I, I like that you say they've taken away freedoms because that to me sounds like such an American thing to say <laughs> where... Where it's like they're protecting people. They're not trying to take away anybody's freedoms. They're trying to keep people safe. Hey, don't get me wrong. I've barely left my house since this whole thing has started. Uh, I'm all for a lockdown if that's what it has to be to save lives. But, you know, there is an element of I want to go out to a bar and drink with my friends and go out for fancy dinners and that kind of stuff like 
before we were free to do that without worry of us getting sick or us infecting and maybe even killing someone else. And we all have to give up a little bit of freedom right now in order to save some lives, but it's not like real freedom. And I don't understand the people who think that wearing masks infringes on freedom. It doesn't. It's like a seatbelt. Put it on your face and like protect people. I mean, that's uh, Toronto just passed that July 7th. It will be mandatory inside public indoor places that you have to wear masks. It's been that way here, I think, for a while. Well, I guess once we hit green phase and we fully reopened, I think that people were not wearing masks when they went to restaurants and they were eating in restaurants. Everywhere else, you had to wear a mask. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, The only restaurants that can be open right now are restaurants that have patios. You can't go inside the restaurants yet. Oh, that's smart because it's a lot safer to be around people on a patio. I think they've closed down restaurants except for takeout again here because of the the increase in cases. But when they opened, they were allowing everything. I mean, and I live near an area that has bars at night and people and like I would be walking the dog and just I see like swaths of people lining up at this bar to get in and like like party and I'm just thinking and none of them are socially distanced they're all in a clump no way they're all from one household and and I was just like oh my gosh this is not gonna be going (laughs) like in three weeks we're gonna be locked down again and that's exactly what's happened so you were saying about the hunt with watching the hunt currently as The world is melting in America. You know, those uneducated, uh, stubborn, maybe a little bit selfish, and they're getting hunted in this movie. And so, like, at first, you kind of want to root for them because you don't want anyone to get hurt, and your instinct is to be on the side of the victim. Of course. But then they'll, like, say or do something really horrible. Like, they'll go and be racist, and you'll be like, well, yeah, yeah, just kill that person because they're awful. So it plays with that, and I really like that about this movie. When I turn on the news, I see people like that protesting their right to not wear masks or protesting to reopen things so they can get a freaking haircut. Like, just crazy things because... I would think the human life is more important. And so I don't know, watching that type of person get killed over and over and over again in this movie, it was really great. I really enjoyed it. I I read something about um, a person being born in the year 1900s and or the in the year 1900 and everything they saw in their life and the amount of struggle they had in their life. And how they saw many wars in their life and all this. And when it comes to our generation, this is one of the biggest things cataclysmically yeah, to hit us. And we're, you know, we can't wear a mask. And I always think that that's a little bit selfish. It's super selfish. And so, yeah, I don't know. Watching this movie at this moment in history, it hit a nerve. It felt... Fun and uh, I think I I got to like take out some f- theoretical frustrations through watching this thing. I think that's what makes movies so great, right? Anyway, totally. it's super timely and I really enjoyed it. All right, uh, I will check it out. 
it's available to rent now. Uh, I know when it first came out, it didn't have the best reviews. There was a lot of conversation about it, though, and I just... Because of those reviews, I didn't want to pay the twenty dollar price point. But now it's down. Now it's six. yeah. It's it's less like expensive now. Yeah, I I, like I would fine. recommend watching it for this price. And I mean, you know, it's not going to win an Oscar, but it was no, fun. no, no. It's super timely. The last not going to win an Oscar movie you recommended to me was Ready or Not, and it was the best time. I had in a long time watching a movie. So Ugh, uh, it Ready sounds or like not the was hunt so is going to be similar. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very similar. Uh, I mean, Ready okay, or Not number, was better. Just well, so you, Ready or yeah. Not is fantastic. It's yeah, it's fantastic. Film. It's not as good as Ready or Not, but it's good. Yeah. It's really good. But that's okay. Okay, what's your next one? My number two on my list is uh, an Alfred Hitchcock picture, and we're going all the way back to 1954. The film is Dial M for Murder. It is. Can you remind me about that one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's about a. It, 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 everybody in the film is very charming, but the subject matter of the film is that an ex tennis pro is trying to have his wife murdered. Ooh. Everybody is so likable in this, even though, like, two of the main characters are having an affair with each other, and you watch that happen. Everybody is so likable until the unraveling of this story where you really start to like really, really hate our uh, our lead in uh, Tony. But Grace Kelly is incredible in this film and she plays the wife and basically the murder, it, it, it goes wrong. It's all about the aftermath of what happened for this murder to go wrong. Like uh, Tony basically puts a guy in his house with his wife going to strangle her to death. And what could go wrong? And uh, the thing I love about this film and its remake, which is um, a perfect murder with Gwyneth Paltrow and Michael Douglas and Viggo Mortensen is that the one thing that these husbands who are trying to kill their wives forget is the factor that their wives will fight back. And what happens is the wife fights back and something crazy happens. And then the rest of the film is that. I got to say, this is another four out of five, four and a half out of five stars for me. It blew me away how invested I was with, to be honest, just sort of like a play going on. It was a very small set, but Hitchcock does that. I feel like all I need to do is just get two weeks cleared and watch every Hitchcock movie over the course of that time because I'm never disappointed. See, okay, so I haven't seen this one, but the premise sounds fantastic. Last summer, however, I think I watched like four or five Hitchcock movies in a row and not necessarily, I mean, they were still famous, all his movies are, but like not the classics, like not Psycho, not The Birds, not Vertigo, but this was like North by Northwest, the one, I think it's called Rear Window, the one with the guy when he's in his um, wheelchair. Yeah. They were all really good, but like then I got Hitchcocked out. 
But this sounds like kind of exciting. And you got Hitchcocked out. Okay, that's good to know. I don't know if I could. I just was so blown away by the storytelling because what he knows to do so well is pack as much in as he can and make it move. There's like no unnecessary in his films. Yeah, that's true. That's that's very accurate about him. Like if we think about Psycho, every scene plays such an integral and important part. Look, I saw Psycho for the first time only a couple of years ago. And I'm an idiot <laughs> because I have only been appreciating it for so long. It is perfect. I love that film. And and I just keep going back and seeing these. OK, this is why this scene is so important in this scene and this scene. And I, I, I love it. I I do agree. Some of his movies are just, I think, spectacular. I didn't love North by Northwest. Have you ever seen that one? I have seen North by Northwest and I got to agree with you, Ivana. I, I don't. I don't see what everybody else sees in that Me film. Me neither. I feel like it's kind of a little long and drawn out, and it's a spy movie that I I guess it could be better. Yeah. If I'm being honest, I look at it and I'm like, why isn't this better? Yes, but but he does do movies that you're like, this is an almost perfect movie. So it's it's good to know that you're coming recommending this. Because I love yeah, the premise. Dial M for murder. It's excellent. Can I ask you a question? Go for it. Did you watch the black and white or the colorized version? I watched the color version, actually. I think I would, too. Like, I, I you know, sometimes black and white is what you want to see. But other times you just want to see that color and the vibrancy. And this is one of those movies. This is also the only movie Hitchcock did in 3D. Wait, so you'll see like wait, one element. Yeah, he was forced by the studio to do a 3D picture. So this picture was a 3D picture, which is so weird when you watch the movie, because at no point, maybe one point, are you like, what would stand out in 3D in this at all? You know, that kind of like from the things I know or have read about Hitchcock, that doesn't surprise me that he would be like, oh, you want me to do a 3D movie? Okay, fine. I'm going to give you the least 3D 3D movie that you're ever going to get. <laughs> That's right. It's not like a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It's not an adventure film. It is this like very small story in this one apartment. And <laughs> I'll, I guess I'll do that in 3D. It's ridiculous. I don't even like, you know, they used to watch it with like the, the red and the blue, like that kind of 3D. Like those really old paper yeah, things? Yeah, those were the ones. Yeah, they had to put the paper things on. Wow, crazy. All right, my next one, I think, is going to surprise you. Uh, and it is, guess who's coming to dinner? The original. Okay, I just, I just finished watching it. I surprisingly really, really loved this movie, which is so white of me. Just because, like... But that's okay. I think it was made for you. I think it was made for white people. It, yeah. So, like, that's the thing. I think it was... First of all, this is 1963, I think. Uh, 67. 67, with Sidney Poitier, who is just amazing, and he's so good. It's it's a really charming film, and I I personally enjoyed this idea of two middle-aged liberals 
what the right-wing people here in this country call the liberal elite. Um, They're like, they have to be faced with their own hypocrisy when their daughter comes home and says that she wants to marry a black man. You know, they, they spent her whole life teaching her to be liberal and think of everyone as equals. And this is 1967, I mean, so like the backdrop and the tensions and the and the protests and all this stuff that was happening at that time. It's kind of interesting just to see this very small story about people who say that they're anti-racist and preaching things. And then all of a sudden, bam, they suddenly realize that they believe these things in theory, but they never really followed it up with real action. I think a lot of people right now that are white, I think are grappling with that concept like, oh, I wasn't doing enough and I needed to take a look at my own actions more deeply. And I, I love that about this movie. It definitely has its faults, right? Like Sydney's character is like perfect to this degree that he is like a Superman, you know? Oh, yeah. He is the exact person that any parents want their daughter to marry. Right. Um, and then their daughter is might as well be a cardboard cutout of a character. Oh, she has nothing going on with her at all. She and and I mean, one of the great things about watching these older race films from uh, the 60s, especially during the civil rights movement. Um, guess who's coming to dinner came out the same year that the Supreme Court said, no, you can marry other races other than your own it was the first time that had happened and so it was it was groundbreaking for white audiences to see guess who's coming to dinner and you get this woman who is so idealistic that she doesn't even think that she needs to at all explain herself uh not explain herself that's the wrong way but just tell her parents. Yeah, like she's like, they're not going to care. Like she just doesn't understand. Give your parents a moment. Just just a moment. And of course, she doesn't think that way because they've had a housekeeper who is black, who uh, is absolutely a part of the family. And that person helped raise this woman. So but did you not find just to talk about that particular character did you not find that in and of itself like, oh, you say you're so liberal, but you still have a, a black person as your subordinate in your household, even if you're kind to them, whatever. Like, I, it's very 60s. Yeah, it was, like, it was a little strange because they're definitely well off. They're, they're rich. Yeah. And, and she at points comes off as the help. And that's definitely not... I, it is strange touting your liberalism. You're a gallery owner. You're an editor of a newspaper. It's weird also that you need this person at all. I don't know. Like, why do you need this person? You live in an apartment building, for God's sakes. Well, I mean, like, I don't know. <laughs> People have housekeepers, but like, I, I'm not. It just felt so hypocritical and maybe that's the point you know maybe the filmmaker wanted to be like look how big of a hypocrite you are as you well and and the fact that their daughter saw this person as a motherly figure 
But the parents always saw her as an employee, I suppose. I think that happened, though, a lot of times. Like, I think that's an accurate representation to what happened at that time. I think so, too. No, uh, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, The other part of that is to show that even uh, this is a black woman and he's a black man and she is equally suspicious and equally not trusting of this person coming into the family who she feels might harm this this girl she loves added another realistic layer to how much not only race tensions were between white and black but even within the black community it's it's an interesting part of the story I, i found the story really really well done there are parts of the story that i didn't necessarily agree with with 2020 eyes however 1967 how important is this to white audiences it is so important this movie i thought was really good not without its problems as you said a lot of things in 2020 eyes um you're like yeah but like some things you're like oh it's still relevant. Like that's even worse. The the moments that it's still relevant. That's that's the problem, right? Is watching a film like this today. It's and it and having it be that continued relevance Ugh, is like so it's been upsetting. It's, it's been so much time, and it's so disappointing. But it's all we're all growing, and we're all learning. We're all learning more about white privilege, and and learning to get off of the ego that that comes with and just step back and understand a little more it just means that you have inherent rights that other races and people of color do not have the same benefits of just being white it's a fact it's not that we are saying that you are a bad person yeah i'm saying it's a fact that if i walk down the street right now Right out my house, went down to Kingston Road. Maybe I was drunk. I would likely be fine. Mm-hmm. But if, it, but if one of my friends who is a person of color did the same thing, they might get picked up. They might go to prison. That like that is that's and it's a fact. It's a fact. I had I, we've had a lot of tangents, but I'm just gonna have this one more tangent. Um. One time I was talking to Blake about this and he had read somewhere and I don't know where. Um, the best way to think about privilege is like um, if you're, let's say, a good looking, fit, white, 30 something year old man, you have a full deck of cards, like all 52 deck of cards. Each thing that you're not one of those, you like take away cards and that's privilege. It's like, the more things you have going for you that gives you more cards, the more privileged you are. The more things you have going against you, the less privileged you are, meaning that intersectional people are even less privileged than even other people, you know? Like, you're just constantly removing cards from people. And I think it's a nice analogy because I think it illustrates just that factual nature. But you have to acknowledge that you have those cards. Exactly. It's like the more cards you have, the better off you are. And that that's just like a reality. All right. We are down to my number one. My number one of the movies that I have discovered during this quarantine time is a 1962 film. It is black and white. I watched it in black and white. 
It is by director Masaki Kabayashi, and the film is called Harry Kiri or Hara Kiri. And this film is the pinnacle of epic storytelling. Basically, I found this film because I went to the top 250 narrative films of all time list that Letterboxd has, and it's all voted by users. And out of like the top 10, this was one of two I had not seen. Oh my God, this film, I'm looking at the stills on IMDb. It's unbelievably beautiful. Uh, The cinematography in this film is outstanding, but the story, this is like epic, epic storytelling. So it's about a samurai who comes to a, uh, he comes to like a, I guess a samurai community. Think of the community as like a, a temple of monks, but this is for samurai. And he comes there and he asks for permission to perform Harakiri, which is to kill himself in the way of the samurai. He can't live anymore. He doesn't want to, to live anymore. And instead of dishonoring himself by going poor and destitute and losing everything, he wants to have this preferred death. And what kind of what 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 is like that preferred death? Okay, so what happens is they kneel before their fellow samurai and they take their sword and they stick the sword in them, pull it to the right, and then they start to die and a second chops off their head. So they have so like if I was to perform harakiri on myself, I would stick myself with the sto- sword and then someone else would chop my head off. Right. So that your suffering isn't further prolonged. So it's you making the first act and then your suffering is over. Okay. Basically. Right. It's a pretty simple premise. But as the story goes, there's been a lot of people faking that they'll do that to get a little bit of money for whatever reason because... There's job shortages. So they put him through the ringer and put him through the test like they did another person who they thought was just faking it. You find out that that other person was related to the man who's there now. And I'm not going to tell you why, because there's an amazing story in the through ground. It's uh, it's sad and it's poetic and there's justice and it's an incredible film. It's really, really an amazing feat for 1962 to have this amazing story. The level of epic story. Like I was on the the edge of my seat throughout most of this film. I cannot recommend it enough. I gave it five out of five stars. It's the only film I've given five stars while I was in quarantine. Wow, that's cool. All right, so what is your last one? My last one is another new one, um, and it's one that I did end up paying like the full like extra price for, uh, and that is King of Staten Island. Okay, all right. Tell everybody why they need to see that. King of Staten Island has so much heart in it. It's a really grounded film. It's a story about grief. It's a story about 
getting on with your life. It's a story about healing and the different ways that family members who have passed can like affect you, but in, in good ways and in bad ways, like as you move on with your life. Um, it's also a movie about mental illness and the fact that it can be very difficult to do the simplest of things when you're really depressed. And it's just, I don't, it's, it's a delightful story. Like it made me feel good even when I felt bad in the movie. Really perfect Judd Apatow directed vehicle um, co-written by Pete Davidson. Pete Davidson shines. He is so good in this movie. And is it funny? I mean, it's Judd Apatow. It's, I mean, it's a dramedy. Because what you're saying about the film is some heavy stuff. But at the core of it, you know, Judd Apatow made his career off of comedies. It's definitely a comedy, but it's it's a dramedy. Like, it's not... There are absolutely parts where I laughed out loud, but there are plenty of parts where it's just really grounded and dramatic. And I think, to be honest, that's where Judd Apatow plays best. But unlike movies like Funny People, which was also a dramedy, that one had a lot of, like, mean-spiritedness in it. Like... Okay. They're always making jokes at someone's expense, and that's what funny people kind of felt like to me. A lot of meanness... This movie's not mean. No one's trying to be mean. Everyone's trying to do good for the people around them. But then, like, they're just failing because it's hard and because there are missed connections. I don't know. I really, I really like this movie. I mean, it's also kind of based on, to my knowledge anyway, uh, Pete Davidson's life. His father was a fireman and he passed away in 9-11. That is not what is in this movie, but... Um, it is about a guy whose father was a fireman who also passed away, saving someone, I see. being heroic. I mean, it is funny. Like, Pete Davidson's stoner friends are really, like, they, I don't, I don't think this really gives anything away. Like, it is definitely a plot point, but I, I never, it's not something that, like, you need to be surprised by. But spoiler for anyone who might want to skip forward a bit. They, like, at some point decide they're going to try to rob a store. And it's just the most misguided, stupid robbery you've ever seen. And even just Pete Davidson's, like, initial, like, what are you guys doing? You're idiots. I'm not getting involved in this to, like, somehow being roped into it and then doing a horrible job. It's so, it was great. Great movie. A lot of heart. Perfect Judd Apatow directed thing. But it was, like, this is Pete Davidson's movie. It is all Pete Davidson. Okay. All right. That's, I mean, that's excellent to hear, uh, especially because Pete Davidson hasn't really had a huge film career. It's when we talk about Pete Davidson, we talk about SNL. And if this can catapult him into more films, I'm all for it. I think it's going to. I hope it is. And, you know, like, and he's, oh, and Marissa took me. She's amazing. That's all. Oh, but Marissa Tomei is amazing in everything. In everything. You know, watching like, her. Do we need to bring up the wrestler again? <laughs> yeah. we Watching her in this movie, I was like, oh, Marissa Tomei so good. And I really want to watch My Cousin Vinny again. <laughs> oh, You know what? I did watch uh, My Cousin Vinny in uh, pandemic time as well. Again. Like, it was just like, I've seen that movie 
maybe 10 times. I only saw it for the first time like five years ago. It's It was a revelation. Ah. I love that movie so Got much. Got catch up to do. <laughs> catch up to do. Yeah. All right. So now we got to kind of figure out this mix of old and new and uh, come up with a list of the top three. It's going to be tricky because you haven't seen any of mine and I haven't seen I've seen only one of yours. Right. So I'm I'm all for everybody in pandemic. And at this time where Black Lives Matter is so important, sitting down and watching Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that that should be on the list. I really want uh, Harakiri to be number one. Like, I think we just give that the number one. I'm definitely rooting for Harakiri to be in there. So if you want to stick at number one, why don't we put Guess Who's Coming to Dinner at number two? Okay, that's good. And then that leaves The Hunt and it leaves... Uh, the King of Staten Island. We got Dial M for Murder and Copland. I would say that we can throw the hunt off the boat. I don't think it deserves. No, to and be I'll on this take list. Copland off the boat as well. So it's really between Dial M for Murder and the King of Staten Island. Well, the King of Staten Island is your number one. It's yeah, the King of Staten Island is my number one. I I have been seeing a lot of bad movies though, so I don't know that we should just like. But it is a you know what? It's such a good movie. Dial in for Murder also sounds really good. Like, it sounds like one of those great Hitchcock movies and not one of his okay. But you know what? This is a list for everybody. And we have Hari Kiri from the 60s. We have Guess Who's Coming from the uh, to Dinner from the 60s. I think we put The King of Staten Island for those people who aren't going to go back and watch a samurai epic that is in black and white or go back and watch a 60s civil rights film. This is their film that they can watch. Yeah. So I think The King of Staten Island makes sense at number three. I love this. I love this list. All right, let's kick it off. Number three, The King of Staten Island. Number two, guess who's coming to dinner? And the number one film that we discovered in pandemic is Harakiri. Beautiful list. Uh, I know we've been rambling a long time, but <laughs> I got to knock out a couple honorable mentions. I watched Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and I, I cried like a baby at the end of that film. I saw The Graduate finally, and it and knocked my socks off. I don't know if I'll watch The Graduate ever again, because Dustin Hoffman in that film is such a rat bastard. But I really, really enjoyed the film. Smokey and the Bandit, I've talked about before. Love it. Netflix, Da Five Blood. You are my number one so far of the year. Yvonne already knows that, so it's fine. I can say it right now. Yep. You're my number one of the year. I, I Amazing. I saw a John Singleton film called Rosewood, and it's shocking and real story. It took place in the 20s where a bunch of white people came and basically decimated, decimated. An entire black community because a white girl said that a a black man assaulted her and that was not true. Oh, no. And it was horrible. Great film. Scent of a Woman I had never seen until now and it's way different than I expected it to be and I'm so glad I watched it. Dragged Across Concrete. I'm not touting that I love Mel Gibson or anything like that, but uh, the film has a lot to do with race and it's interesting. And then Bride of Chucky, I never saw it before, but man, it's it's so good. It's so 
so stupid and so perfectly bad 90s or 2000 era horror movie. It's so perfectly stupid. I gave it four stars. Everything on this list I gave four or higher. And that's not even an irony. Bride of Chucky's ridiculously dumb and everyone should see it. All right, I'm going to knock off mine. First, I want to give a shout out to Lovebirds with Kumail Nanjiani. He is brilliant and he was like already fit while he was doing that movie, but I think they were trying to hide it. Highly entertaining to see that. Then we have I Spit on Your Grave, the original um oh man it's you know like it is sexploitation um but it's really Very hard to it's watch. really good and it, it's entertaining and you know what the remake also i watched the the first then the second i i still like the remake but not as much as the first and then love witch which is um a female take on sexploitation kind of love ploitation um and it's a, f- a recent film, but like a huge nod to the 60s. But it explores themes of like, what is the female gaze and like all that kind of stuff. It's it's really weird dialogue. It's super stylistic. And it's not for everyone. Like, I'm just going to put that out there. It was not for me. Ivana recommended it to me. I popped it on. I understand all the things she's saying right now. And they are all those things, but it just wasn't for me. All right, well, that is all the fun stuff we wanted to talk about and all the movies we've been watching and have finally discovered in the pandemic time. So what are you watching? What have been the 102 movies that you have discovered while being in quarantine? You can reach us anytime and let us know. All right, Jay, we had so many tangents (laughs) while we were talking about our pandemic movies That I feel like we've already caught up like a lot. We usually use this time to talk about the pandemic, things like that. Honestly, I think we should just like skip forward ahead because we we touched on all of it in our chat. Yeah, we did it. We're good. In my day, we just called them their interwebs, the paper. Once again, we're going to play some BuzzFeed quizzes live and on the air. I guess not live, pre-recorded, but live to each other. Live to each other. This is happening in real time. It's the magic, the magic of the podcast. And in addition, we're trying out this new thing that BuzzFeed just released, and it's a BuzzFeed quiz party. I have no idea what I'm doing, but we're going to do. So are you abusing your mayonnaise privileges? We're going to find out in this BuzzFeed quiz. So would you put mayo on a sandwich? Yes, I absolutely would. No, I hate mayonnaise. (laughs) This is going to be a really fun quiz. This is going to be easy. (laughs) Would you add mayo to a tuna salad? No. Absolutely would. (laughs) I eat my tuna plain. I am a monster. (laughs) Would you dip French fries in mayo? No. I do not like that. That is not what it's for. No, I agree. However, and here's where I'm a hypocrite. Um, sometimes if it's like a spicy aioli. Oh, yeah. That's the good stuff. Which actually is the next one. What about sweet potato fries? I got to say, yeah. Yeah. Not, well, not main. I feel like spicy is spicy aioli the same as mayonnaise. I guess that's my question. I don't know, but I think mayo is in the aioli, isn't it? Well, like aioli... Isn't it a part of the recipe? I think aioli is... 
homemade from scratch mayonnaise with garlic and then other things. All right. Well, what about this next one? Would you dip sushi in spicy mayo? Oh, um, I mean. Ah, that is a hard one. I Because I'd have it topped with it, but I don't know if I would dip it. So I'm going no. I am. So I usually scrape off the mayonnaise, the spicy mayonnaise. So I'm going to so also go no. you say no as well. Yeah. Chicken tenders. Oh, God. Absolutely oh, not. Oh, God. No Who, way. what monster no puts way. chicken tenders into <laughs> mayo? Oh. Would you dip your onion rings in mayo? Yeah, I would do that. I would definitely do that. You're a monster. You. I am a monster. <laughs> I'm the guy. You're a mayonnaise monster. No. Would you spread it on a burger? Of course I would. It's an extension of the sandwich. I, I hate mayo. No. I want it off of the burger. Would you add it to a grilled cheese? Now we're getting into that as a weird thing, I think. I literally today watched, like, I was on the Food Channel or something, and they were talking about putting mayonnaise on a grilled cheese. So, like, it's like instead of butter on the inside, you do mayonnaise. That's awful, horrible, disgusting, That pukey. makes no sense to me. Hell no. It is grilled cheese and then some ketchup. Ketchup's okay, but not mayo for that one. Would you dip chips in mayo? No. Well, I've never done it. Would I? You got to try it now. No. You got to no, try it. I know. Like, I'm not doing next it. Next time you buy chips, weird. you need to try this and report back. Super weird. <laughs> uh, would you dip mozzarella sticks in mayo? Is someone, no. That's, is someone playing a disgusting joke? Who would do this? Oh, see, now this is where we get tricky because I said yes to almost every bread product. But now we're getting into like a sacred bread product, the bagel. Yeah. Would you spread mayo on a bagel? No. No, I would not. No chance. I have a question. I have a follow-up question for you. What if that was a bagel that was doing like a breakfast sandwich? Do you put mayo on those? Like a BLT type of thing, but with egg. Oh, no, but I would do it. I, I would. Wow. Uh, not with egg, but I would do it with a BLT. But this just says with a bagel, it doesn't stipulate. Yeah. With like, I think that's fair. I think you should write no. Or the L or no, the you do not do that. And that is for me, my cream cheese, and only my cream cheese. Well, I like a good bagel with butter. Would you slather mayo on a slice of pizza? What? What? No. 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 Oh. Okay, now we're getting. I think these are now just like, like I think these are the crimes against humanity. Yeah, would you dip a pickle in mayo? Of course not. How do you even do that? Okay, okay, I do have. Not that I would dip a pickle. Okay, I don't know how to express. So there's this thing called um, ruska salata. Um, it translates to Russian salad. And uh, it's like the Serbian dish, and it's a potato salad with potatoes and eggs and pickles. Oh, and it's and and it's mayonnaise, like it's all mixed with mayonnaise. And is it good? It's unbelievable. And I hate mayo, but I love this salad. There's something about the pickle with the, it, the pickle completely neutralizes the mayonnaise and makes it a whole different taste. I wouldn't like. 
all out dip a pickle into mayonnaise, but I'm going to answer yes to this question because I hate mayo and I don't eat anything with mayo because I do eat the salad that has pickles and mayonnaise together. You know, it didn't stipulate, so I stick with my no, but a fried pickle, a deep fried pickle, I dip in whatever they give me. And if it's mayo, I'm dipping it in mayo. Okay, would you use plain old mayo as a salad dressing? No, that would, no, it's not a salad dressing. That's disgusting. That is disgusting. I agree. Whoa, but not as disgusting as this. Would you add mayo to your coffee? Does does anyone do this? Like, is this a thing? Is yeah, is this a thing? I. If this is a thing, no. internet, please reach out to us and and tell us it's a thing. Cause ew. Who's doing this? <laughs> okay. Would you add a dollop of mayo? To the top of a fruit salad. Uh, yogurt, yes. Mayo, no. Yeah, I agree. Yogurt, yes. Mayo, hell no. Would you use mayo to sandwich two cookies together? No. This is disgusting. Someone's playing a prank this on us. This is wrong. So, and this is long. This is really long. Okay, let's go like super speed on the next ones. Would you devour the following ice cream order? One scoop of vanilla, one scoop of chocolate, and one scoop of warm mayo gross would you take a dip in a nice hot bath but instead of water it's mayo uh that is a no no and i get a little done (laughs) i click done we reached the end yay Yay. okay i'll read yours you read mine all right ivana congratulations you're not abusing your mayonnaise privileges On the playing field of life, you're operating well within the boundaries when it comes to mayo. Of course, this quiz only asked how you use your mayo and not how much. As far as I can tell, however, you're taking your mayo privileges very seriously. Carry on. And you just read your answer as well because you also got the same thing. Booyah. We're like the exact same person, except I put mayo on sandwiches. (laughs) All right. So that was quiz number one. A little long, but that was good. Yeah, I agree. We have another quiz lined up today. Hopefully the mayonnaise one was to everybody's liking. This one is which Ross quote from friends matches your personality? Uh, And we're going to play along. So, Jay, first question. Pick an adjective yeah. that describes you. Annoying, bossy, expressive, sentimental. Hmm. I am definitely not bossy. I might be annoying. <laughs> um, I'm probably sentimental most out of all these things. Okay. I'm going to say sentimental. I agree. I think sentimental. Um, the two, it's funny. You're like, maybe annoying, maybe sentimental. I went with, oh, maybe I'm bossy, maybe I'm expressive, um, but I'm going to go with <laughs> expressive. I think that's my biggest one. I think so. That sounds about right. Pick a food or drink. You got a sandwich, you got fajitas, you got beer or water. I select fajitas. I select sandwich. Ooh, exciting. We both chose food. Interesting. I know. I, I'm not a beer I mean, I have a lot of beer in me, but I'm not a beer. (laughs) What's next? Choose something iconic from friends. 
the first one is Ross's apartment, the newest one. I think that's the one where he has the baby with Rachel. Yeah. Uh, Ross and Rachel's relationship, Ross's fajitas, or Thanksgiving episodes. Uh, so while it was in its run, all I remember was the Ross and Rachel's relationship. As we've talked about, I have done a rewatch. I'm going to pick Thanksgiving episodes. Hey, me too. They're, they're, I don't even know anything about these fajitas. Oh, he grabs a pot and he doesn't have anything on and they burn his hands. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, but Ross is the All worst. Right. <laughs> He's the worst. Pick something to do. Redecorate, cook, go to a restaurant, or go on a date. Oh, man. Is it COVID? Like, is it right now? I th- I'm going to go with now and I'm going to go with redecorate. So am I. Redecorate for the win. Who's your favorite friend's character? Rachel, Joey, Monica, Chandler, Phoebe, or Ross? I love Joey. Chandler. Joey's my guy. Chandler's my guy. Chandler followed by Monica. Wow, that is so different. I would go Joey followed by Rachel. (laughs) All right, finally choose a random thing. We got my favorite food, the person I love most in the world, my cozy living room, or spontaneous nights with friends. Spontaneous nights with friends. I miss those and I love those. You know what? I I love those too. They don't happen as frequently anymore. But I'm going to pick the person I love most in the world. Aw, Becky. (laughs) Yeah. And you know what? It goes back to sentimental. It does. Aw, I love that. All right. I'm going to hit done. Done. Okay, I'm going to read yours. Ivana got, you threw my sandwich away. You're quite sentimental and get pretty angry when people touch your belongings without your permission. You love to eat and sometimes spend hours or even days thinking about the next time you'll get to eat your favorite foods. You got the, we're twins. We're twinsies today. Why do we keep getting the same thing here? We keep twinsing. You threw my sandwich away. You threw my sandwich away. Mm, Take two. This time around, we took a crack at one of Ivana's movies that she remembered really enjoying. And I don't remember liking this one very much. It's To Die For by Gus Van Sant. So here's what this one is about. The movie opens on in an interview format with Suzanne Stone, played by Nicole Kidman, and she's talking about her married name and how important her family has been at this difficult time. This quickly dissolves into first-person accounts of people talking about Suzanne, and a dark story starts to unfold. Suzanne is a person with great ambition and aspires to be a household name throughout the medium of television. After some uncomfortable advice, she even wins over a local television network and becomes the weather girl. We meet her husband, who has very little drive, but wants to get more involved in the family restaurant and have a family. That's where the two characters often clash. One wants fame and riches. The other is content with a restaurant and kids. And so Suzanne dives into a massive project with some kids at the local high school called Teen Speak with three troubled young people. It doesn't take long for the kids to start opening up about their problems, and Suzanne sees an opportunity with James. James, played by Joaquin Phoenix, seems to be obsessed with Suzanne. And Suzanne plays him perfectly with her sexuality 
eventually using that to get James to kill her husband. And as the plan goes accordingly, once her husband is dead, Suzanne abandons the three teenagers and embraces the newfound media attention. After arrests are made and two of the three teens wind up with jail time, we realize that Suzanne hasn't been speaking to anyone. She's been telling her story to a camera the entire film to send out to stations and sell that story. And as she drives out to meet who she thinks is a TV producer, she's murdered and put on a block of ice by a hitman hired by her father-in-law who's in the mob or associated with them. And just when you think it's over, we get one more lesson about being on television from Lydia, the female member of the trio of teens. And it went like this. Suzanne used to say that you're not really anybody in America unless you're on TV. Because what's the point of doing anything worthwhile if nobody's watching? So when people are watching, it makes you a better person. So if everybody was on TV all the time, everybody would be better people. But if everybody was on TV all the time, there wouldn't be anyone left to watch. So take two, Ivana... Did you like it the way you remembered or was this viewing different for you in any way? I didn't remember the plot of this movie at all. (laughs) 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 But but I remembered like how I felt when I watched it. And and that, to be honest, I think kind of stayed true. The tone is very interesting. It's like this mockumentary kind of tone, like docudrama, though, because there's flashbacks, right? So it's kind of like docudrama interview and then flashback reenactment, but not. And I thought that was kind of interesting, but it was like very light for content that was very dark, if you know what I mean. But it also would go up and down on that content or on that tone, I should say. Like the tone would be light and airy and, and you'd get a joke out of one of those documentary style cuts. But then you'd have, you know, a minute sitting there with Joaquin Phoenix with something he thinks is light, but you're watching and it is not. Yeah. It's the whole darkness of the film comes out. And and that was what I remember the last time I saw it, which was about four years ago. The tone going up and down a lot. It really wants to be like a documentary style found footage film where they take footage from all these places. But then it abandons that at a lot of the time. So it, it doesn't feel so connected to that. I do agree. It's a little bit disconnected. The way that it kind of felt to me was that I do think that in the beginning, you're coded to believe that this is meant to be a mockumentary format or documentary type format. A hundred percent. Upon this viewing, I don't think that's actually accurate. I think that this movie is meant to be read. Um as an authentic docudrama. So you know like docudramas where you have an interview about something that happened and then a reenactment with different actors? It, I think that's what it's really meant to be, and yet it's the same actors, and so you have to like suspend your disbelief a bit. And, and what Gus Van Sant is also trying to do is wrap around these moments that are the docudrama moments, which no one was there to film, and he's wrapping them around with these Mori Povich moments and media moments and things like that to drive home his 
his message. There's a message to the film. He wants to drive home. But by the end of the film, he has beat that message in your skull with so little subtlety that you are you're almost grateful that by the end, the messenger has literally been taken out to a barn and shot. Yeah. You know, but then on the flip side, like I don't want to be all negative about this film, because when you look at the performances, they are all incredible the performances are great i also really enjoy that tone the thing that you called like going up and down to me actually felt really consistent because i felt like he was trying to nod towards that idea of the white picket fence america but that underneath that white picket fence or if you look closely at it it's not so white or so pickety i don't know is that a thing like well, and also Nicole Kidman has that same thing you're trying to say to the executive. She's a dumb blonde to her coworker. She's ambitious, but, you know, she's a, a perfectionist to the world. She projects a certain way, but she is, in fact, cold, calculated, sociopathic. When you, you see her take Lydia behind in in a mall just down an alley in a mall and just go off you're like yeah okay like she is putting on an act yeah when she's saying things like truth justice and all that stuff she is putting on an act because she knows what that other stuff is she knows how to get it done she's way smarter than what she lets the world see absolutely and i think that that is That's what I loved about this movie. And I still really like this movie because I really enjoy watching that like darkness between beneath the the patina, let's say. Okay. I think that a lot of things in life are like that. And I think that a lot of people are whether it's like them pretending that everything is fine and dandy, but on the inside they're hurting or people pretending to be a certain way, but on the inside being something else, like whatever it is, we all have these acts. And, and I think that the world is a lot less shiny than we, than we like to think. And, and, and I appreciate that about this movie. So I thought it was consistently uncomfortable in that way of like, like showing you that, really underneath all these people are like completely messed up. Like, like Joaquin Phoenix is completely messed up. Absolutely. And even, um, one of the teens, the female, I forget her name. Um, Lydia, she, she's like obsessed. Like they're, the two of them are completely obsessed with her. The only one that isn't is their friend who just kind of gets involved by accident. Right. Right. Cause he's just a total dick. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. You see fragments of the Me Too movement in this film. So uh, it came out in 1995. She honeymoons in Florida and sneaks off to go to this conference. That's a broadcaster's conference. Mm -hmm. And the way this man who just met this woman speaks to her and everyone around the table is totally down with the way he is speaking to this woman. They're acting like it's nothing. They're acting like it's nothing. He is totally talking to her completely inappropriately for anyone professional and suggesting she do some sexual favors for him in front of other people. Specifically, and he so, wants a blowjob. <laughs> like, specifically. So yeah. you see fragments of 
the Me Too movement in this film as just industry normality. Uh, you see someone set up to fail, and then she sets more people up to fail. Like when she goes in there with the letter, thinking that that could actually get her a job, realizing there's another person there ripping it up. Like that guy just wanted sex, so set her up to fail. So she's now going to set up these patsy kids to fail and her husband's going down and I, I don't know. But ultimately for me, the film was and always has been a little bit forgettable. Like I watched the movie, I'm over the movie and I'm like, I got your message, Gus Van Sant, Mr. Van Sant. We're on the same wavelength. And then about a couple hours later, I'm like, oh, yeah, I watched that. Like it doesn't stick with me. However, I originally had it at a two-star rating, and I've bumped it up to three. Nice. Um, I think I would give it a three and a half. And that's that seems fair. That's pretty consistent as well with uh, all the people on Letterboxd. It's at exactly a 3.5. Now, this is based on true events. It wasn't... Uh, yep, this is by... Um, there was one of the very first publicized trials. I think it was around the time of OJ was somebody named Pamela, Pamela Smart, and she got her 15 year old lover to murder her husband so she could get away with it. She did not get away with it. She is serving a life sentence. in. Yeah, I feel like getting your lover parole. to murder your husband is a bad move. Oh, you are going to get traced absolutely. back really easily. Absolutely. Especially if it's a 15-year-old. These yeah. people are dumb. They talk. They don't keep their mouth shut. So have you ever met a 15-year-old that is so reasoned in their head that they can pull off a murder in that is so executed perfectly that they'd never get caught. I cannot think of a 15 year old that could do that. Not at all. But I also can't think of a 15 year old that like would ever be somebody that I could even romantically think about at all. I don't even understand where the appeal is. It's just beyond weird. So she meets Matt Dillon and they kind of like fall in love and then they get married and it's all like a whirlwind, like all off in the beginning of the movie. And I thought that element of it, felt really grounded to reality of how psychopaths purportedly work, especially because then now she's married and now she basically doesn't want to be with him anymore because he wants a family and she doesn't want a family. And so her idea is, okay, I better get him to get murdered. Rosamund Pike did model her Gone Girl performance after Nicole Kidman in To Die For. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah. Definitely awesome. And uh, she won a Golden Globe for it. She was she not nominated. It. She was not nominated for an Oscar. It's because it's she, a comedy, right? So, like, if yeah. you're in a comedy, yeah. It felt like... I almost felt like this movie wanted to be Fargo if Fargo had been released in 94 and not 96. I don't feel like it was like Fargo at all. Like, at all. I, I mean, the parallels are there. Like... Trying to get someone to kill your, you kill, kidnap, I guess, kidnap in Fargo. You've got uh, the investigators. You've got everybody just being real dumb about the investigation. And the only other thing that's different is really that, like, angle of wanting to be famous and sexy. Well, but, and 
I don't remember Fargo being like a docudrama or a mockumentary. No, but when I look at the film as a whole, I don't think of it that way either. Interesting. I like to me, it's embedded in this movie, that format. And sometimes like it bothers me because I think about the fact that she did that tape and then there's other I guess the the other interviewers are like even further into the future. But there's just a lot that doesn't fully make sense. Because you are watching those people in the past and not other actors. You know what I mean? Right. Okay. You know what? Here's the deal. I just did a quick Google. 1996 Academy Awards. Best Actress nominees. Winner was Susan Sarandon for Dead Man Walking. You've got Sharon Stone for Casino. Meryl Streep for Bridges of Madison County. Elizabeth Shue leaving Las Vegas and Emma Thompson for Sense and Sensibility, which is a comedy. Yeah, but like a way more highbrow comedy. Emma could have come out, I think, and made room for Nicole. But otherwise, it's a pretty stacked actor actress year. As for, I mean, I'm not knocking Sense and Sensibility. It's a great film. But what I'm saying is that like this performance did deserve to be looked at i do agree with that um i will say this if you are kind of curious about the idea of the docudrama style in a scripted film um i really think you should check out uh, a movie from 2018 called american animals it is the docudrama format and it's done perfectly and do you find do you, would you match that up to what we saw in this film no i mean that movie's better i know that but like would you say that uh van sant's ideas of the docudrama are similar to that of uh, american animals oh i mean yes except that american animals what i appreciated even more about it is that it's a little bit more true to the docudrama form so you have, I, I guess I'm, I'm not going to give out who, like you have one set of people being interviewed and a different set of people doing the reenactments. Okay. And that that's just more accurate to a docudrama, which are by definition, there's the documentary aspect, but there's also the reenactment aspect. Right. That makes sense. And, and it's cool. I've never seen a docudrama that's like a real true film. I have American animals way better than to die for. Just watch it. (laughs) (laughs) So what are we watching next time? Oh my God. Okay. I'm so excited about this. I am so excited about this. We're going to watch the Netflix television show, the pilot only, although I can't guarantee I'm not going to watch the whole thing. Warrior none. Sure. What, what is warrior none? You know what? I barely know. I started to watch the trailer and I just got so excited that I was like, nope, I need to stop. I cannot watch the whole trailer. But okay, the tone, it it feels like it's going to be itch that scratch that, no wait, scratch that itch that was left when Buffy was finished. And like Buffy obviously could not continue to be made for like 20 something years, but Like, I really liked Buffy. I think it's a great, fantastic show. I think that this is going to be kind of Buffy-ish. I don't know this to be true, but I get the impression. There's, like, the dialogue in the trailer that I saw was Zippy, and she is 
like quick witted and quick to like throw out one liners. And I really appreciate this. And then on the flip side, there's definitely monsters and there's definitely fighting. And she's also a chosen one. So, yeah. Totally sounds like Buffy. It's a Netflix show and it's available now. It's available now. All right. We're going to watch it next time. So you guys should watch this with us because let's be honest, Warrior Nun is going to be amazing. Ah! Okay. Everybody can go along with Ivana's excitement because she really wants you to. I I'm skeptical that anything can be. Oh my God. Get over your anti Netflix thing. Have you ever seen the order? The order is fantastic. I'll watch. I'll watch the order. I don't know what the order is, but I'll try it. (laughs) And that's our show. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in again next time. And if you'd like to support the show, you can hop onto your podcast service and subscribe. And if you're really feeling generous, why not score a quick rating or review? Our intro song comes from bensound.com and we encourage you to check out our show notes for more information about our music, our talented voice actors, and our sound effects. Ivana and I love hearing from you, so we built a website on how you can reach us at morethemovies.net. But in case you hate websites, you can also email us, kind of. Hello. Can you? At have you checked? Have you even checked? Okay, you can find us on Facebook and also been posting some fun stuff there for you at More Than Movies Podcast. Or catch us on Twitter. I'm at It's Ivana. I'm at Jester J. Thanks again for spending some time with us. We'll be back again soon with an all new episode. And until next time, friends. Do more. And watch more. <laughs>